welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Ariel Rasco. And my name is Raymond O'Connor. This week, Ray and I want to discuss the show Arcane. We both had the same experience of watching this show and being amazed. This show was so incredible and has so many different features that we would love to play in a campaign of Dungeons and Dragons as well. So today, we're going to try to extract a few key elements that we could bring into Dungeons and Dragons to make it as narrative and as politically complex and as exciting as the things we got to see unfold in Arcane. I'm sure that we're not the only people that, whenever they're watching a movie or a television show or reading a book, we're viewing it through the lens of, wow, it would be great if I could bring this concept to my game of Dungeons and Dragons and share this with my players. This feeling that I'm experiencing right now, either watching or reading this content, can I bring that feeling to my table and bring that feeling to my players? Every once in a while, you'll watch a show or a movie or play a game that does this to the extreme. Some examples that readily come to my mind are obvious examples like Avatar The Last Airbender, and then maybe less obvious examples like the Fire Emblem games. And watching Arcane maybe experience this feeling perhaps more strongly than I ever had in the past. And I think after some conversation, Ariel and I have identified some specific elements that exist in the story that perhaps can be generalized beyond arcane and easily dropped into your game of Dungeons and Dragons without needing to stop your current campaign and scrap it and start a new campaign in the arcane setting. I think it's easy to look at the first scenes in arcane and see almost an adventuring party going in off a tip to loot an exciting laboratory and they steal a powerful magic item. And you think, wow, this is so much like D&D. I would, I would love this. And that's maybe where our inspiration came from. But I actually think it goes a lot deeper. In Arcane, you have political intrigue between two major factions that are keeping a tenuous peace between them. That has really great D&D vibes, I think. And then secondarily, you have both factions developing crazy magical technologies. And these magical technologies interrupt the peace as they get stolen from one side and the other. I think creating a D&D game with these features would be a huge success no matter what adventure or what source material you're using. And here is probably a pretty good spot for us to warn anybody who hasn't seen Arcane yet. We're about to spoil a lot of the show. So if you haven't seen it yet, I strongly encourage you to pause this episode and go and watch it in its entirety before listening to this episode of Running Off the Rails, because I don't want to be the person that ruined Arcane for anybody out there. It's probably some of the best television I've ever watched, uh, and I wouldn't want to rob that from somebody. I think it's just a really amazing piece of animated work and fantasy work that is successful for like all audiences. I think everyone will enjoy this. Absolutely. I think that a lot of the magic of Arcane comes from how simple it is with its plot structure. And this is extremely useful for Dungeons and Dragons because the more simple your structures are, the easier it's going to be for you, the DM, to improvise with those structures and it's going to be easier for the players to navigate those structures. A really great example of this in Arcane is that the world is basically two locations. We have Topside, which is Piltover, the wealthy portion of this region where the story takes place. And then we also have the Undercity. 
It's the region directly outside of Piltover where the poor live and struggle to survive. The show almost goes out of its way to keep all other locations in the world extremely vague. I think it's funny, Ray, that even within this simplicity, almost all of our interactions in Piltover are in the council room where the important political decisions are being made. The time outside the council room makes up for only a small fraction of what we see of the top side. That's such a good point, Ariel. When DMs are trying to run big cities like Neverwinter or Baldur's Gate or Waterdeep, it can be a little bit terrifying because you feel like now you need to completely populate this entire city. Every street needs to have something worth visiting. Every house needs to have the family that lives in it or the shop that exists in it. Arcane does a really great job of creating an environment that feels alive and feels fleshed out, but only a few locations in that environment are ever actually highlighted as places where the story is taking place. If you were to create a short list of all the locations that characters actually visit, it might not be any bigger than maybe 10 or 15 locations. And as a dungeon master, that's a pretty long list actually. So we gotta be careful not to go much higher than that. Arcane does a really good job of showing you how few locations you can actually have and still have a very complex story unfold in those limited spots. These two regions are really distinct in beautiful ways. The top side is this utopian city where everybody has all of the things that they need to live in comfort, and the color palette is very specific. It's these these whites and light blues. Everybody wears these rich pieces of jewelry um, and these ornate fancy clothes that clearly demonstrate wealth and an abundance of resources. And then in the Undercity, we see lots of poverty, addiction, and hunger. And in a lot of cases, people don't have places to live. These distinct differences cause conflict. The people in the Undercity want their independence, and they want the lives or the abundance of resources that the people of Topside have. And the beginning of the show opens up with a clan war. The people of the Undercity try to fight against Topside to claim their independence and become more than they are currently because they feel oppressed by Topside. And they lose this war. And many, many people in the Undercity die as a result. This war is vicious, and it leads for a peace deal to be brokered between the two factions. I think you bring up two really important motivations here, Ray. It's not just that the people of the Undercity are poorer, it's also that they want autonomy. They want to be in control of themselves and be independent. So to broker a peace agreement, the people topside ask people in the Undercity to not bring any crime topside, to not steal and to not bring any violence into the nice lives of the people living topside. And in exchange, they get their independence. The people from Topside do not send guards down there. They are allowed to behave independently in the way they want to. I think giving up this wealth for independence is a very tenuous peace agreement, because clearly the people in the Undercity are still hurting and still wanting for more. So it's not that everybody agrees with this peace, but at the beginning of the show, it's certainly better than being killed. This demonstrates a very important question that every dungeon master should ask themselves when they're world building. 
why is there peace in my world? Matthew Colville has a great video about how the natural state of a lot of worlds in fantasy and in the real world, and depending on your perspective and beliefs, is conflict. And when there's peace, it's because there are usually two very influential and important people working very, very hard to keep that peace. Because peace is not the default state. Conflict is the default state. And we see that in the very beginning of the show with the default, which is the Undercity attacking Topside to claim their independence, but also to claim the resources of Topside for themselves to create a more equal distribution of those resources. Why is there peace five or six years later? It is because a leader of the Undercity is working together with a leader in Topside to keep the peace. They will do whatever they can. They will make the sacrifices that they can to keep the peace. Because to those two characters, that is what is most important to them, that people are not dying. I think this brings up another great example of something that Arcane does that we can bring into our own games. One of the things that gets talked about a lot in fiction and in storytelling in general is this idea of an inciting incident. There is some tenuous piece, and a specific thing happens to break that piece. It starts a new conflict that your story will be about. In Arcane, the inciting incident involves our protagonists, and I think this is something that we can really take as a lesson for making good Dungeons & Dragons. Our main characters, Vi and Powder, are involved in an incident where they commit a crime topside. Not committing crimes topside is one of the major components of this peace deal, and now more guards are sent into the Undercity, and this peace has been broken. I think this is a really good thing that we should do in Dungeons & Dragons. We should have our protagonists, meaning the party members, involved in the inciting incident. I think these are the kinds of things that narratively we can bring to our game. We can put our protagonists in these scenarios such that when fights break out, when factions are at war, when peace treaties are discussed, they're right in the thick of it and they care about the results. This is a great way to show your players the world that they're operating in instead of telling them about it. It would be very easy to open a game of Dungeons & Dragons explaining to the characters the two different settings and what one setting has versus the other setting and why there's peace and what the explicit terms of that peace deal is. You can explain that to the characters and they might even ask questions about it. So it might not even be you just expositioning to them. But you can also show them these things as they unfold. If you start your adventure in the Undercity, you have an opportunity to describe the streets and the abject poverty that is right next to the characters as they're operating around in the Undercity. And then they go to the tavern where they pick up a quest, and that quest is a thieving quest where they're going to infiltrate some sort of facility topside and steal something and then as they're walking through the streets of topside you can describe the conditions of that environment you can talk about the jewelry of the people who are walking on the street and the different types of foods that everybody has and you can talk about how some of the people in topside are maybe throwing away food without finishing it there's lots of ways for you to show your players the conditions of this world without explaining to them oh this part of the world is rich and this part of the world is poor. Your players are pretty smart. They'll be able to work out that conflict without you having to explicitly explain it to them. And then 
you are putting them in the inciting event. So you are putting them in a place where they will get a lot of the political information because people will be talking about it because of the inciting event. And what's so amazing about the inciting event that occurs in Arcane is it isn't just about topside versus undercity. Because the thing that is being stolen is technology, it also kicks off the conflict of progressivism versus conservatism. This idea of making progress towards technology or independence and the power that is necessary to achieve those goals versus conservatism, keeping the status quo because right now we're safe. We don't know what will happen if things change. Will people get hurt? Will people die? Yeah, I think you put that all together really nicely. Step one of creating this arcane-like thing is creating you know two simple sides and putting your characters in between them such that they're in the inciting incident. And then step two, we have this incredible technological race. And so with this setup, you now get to ask the question, do you care more about the independence and the peace, or do you care more about prospering and being wealthy? And this is exactly where this new exciting technology comes into place. With Powder stealing this piece of Hextech, the Undercity now has a means of gaining the prosperity that they've lost before. They now also have a means of fighting back with similar power to the Topsiders. And so now you have a place where the factions can split. Before, the factions weren't able to split. You had one large Undercity. But this new technological component has allowed for your factions to become more interesting. And suddenly the Topsiders need to consult the same ideals. Do they care more about the conservative trust that everyone has put in their institutions that Piltover and the Undercity are kept at a nice, peaceful status? Or do they care more about pushing the technology as far as it can go? You have a character like Heimerdinger who sees that technology can often lead to war, and so he really is in this most conservative camp. He doesn't want the magic to be used at all. And then you have the characters like Jace and Victor who believe that they can push things and make everybody's lives more prosperous. They can lift all boats with their new Hextech technology. These different factions, I think, are appealing to anybody. And you can see as an adventuring party multiple factions that you would ally with. And I think that that, as a viewer, is really exciting. In Arcane, you certainly root for many different characters as a viewer. And as a player in a Dungeons & Dragons game, you could choose to move the party in any of four directions and have meaningful justification for why you were doing so. The magic here for me is this idea that there aren't four factions with four very specific goals. Uh, the Dungeons & Dragons example would be the Cult of the Dragon, right? That they want to resurrect Tiamat. That has almost nothing to do with what the Zentarum is after. That has nothing to do with the, what the Lord's Alliance is after. Uh, and what that means is if the Cult of the Dragon is close to achieving their goals, everyone unites against them because no one has anything in common with them. <laughs> no one else wants Tiamat to be resurrected. It's so simple, which is useful for Dungeons & Dragons, but Arcane is also simple because they're super zoomed in. It's, it's just one city. We've zoomed in on one city. There's two places. You're either a topsider or a, or an undercityite, a, a zonite, is what they're called in the show. Because of that, we can get a little bit more complex in this simplicity. Instead of like four distinct factions, we have 
two sets of two factions. So we have Topside and the Undercity, which is this regional thing, which is basically the level of wealth that you're born into. And then we also have this progressivism versus the status quo, pushing technology and taking risk with technology in order to gain our ideals and make change in society versus we should be very careful because people could get hurt. Yeah, times are hard depending on whether or not you live in the Undercity, but at least we have each other because the last time we went and we tried to fight for more, we lost our loved ones and it wasn't worth it. So let's be conservative and treasure what we have. And what's really interesting is you can belong to different combinations of these things depending on what is most important to you. And what it does is it creates these, these really fluid faction changes or kind of betrayals. The first example of this, and in a very benign way, uh, but, the, but the show introduces us to this idea that people are going to change allegiances, is we have Jace, who's working on Hextech technology, this, this crazy, powerful innovation that could unlock this whole extra domain of science. And we have the Professor Heimerdinger who says, technology should not be used in this way. This is dangerous. And Victor is Heimerdinger's assistant. He is on Heimerdinger's side by virtue of working for him. But he decides to help Jace and switch sides and go against Heimerdinger's explicit instructions to work on this technology because he's also excited about this idea of progress in this technology and how it could help people. This is really interesting because they're both a part of the Piltover faction, right? The topside faction. But now Victor has betrayed conservatism to switch to the side of progress. And we see slides in the other direction as well, right? At, at one point, Caitlin as a topside guard eventually switches sides to work with Vi, who is very much fighting for the interests of the Undercity because Caitlyn cares mostly about kindness and reestablishing peace such that more people don't get hurt. And in order to achieve that goal, she's going to switch from the Piltover faction to the, the Undercity faction and work with the people of the Undercity. Yeah, I think that's a really crucial point, Ray, that if status quo and technological conservatism is extremely important for you, you will work between topside and underside. And if progressivism is extremely important to you, you will also work between topside and underside because each one has its own faction. You can see Victor goes really far into progressivism when his own health is on the line. When he believes that he needs technology in order to save himself, he goes and works with the undersiders again who he hasn't seen in a long time. And so I think that you know, you really start asking yourself the question very often, what is the most important motivation for this character? And I think this is extremely important for Dungeons and Dragons. When you have characters that have very strong motivations within a faction, they can be allowed to switch between factions if conditions are changed, if something that their key motivation needs is available in the other faction. This allows you as an adventuring party to go into a faction to find people that you can use as allies or find people that might be enemies. And I think having allies and enemies within a single faction 
makes for very dynamic and interesting Dungeons and Dragons. One of my favorite examples of this in Arcane is actually late in the show, when you have this character Mel Medarda, who has been the most progressive character throughout the entire episode. I think she goes through almost no changes in her attitude towards progressivism until at the very end her mother shows up. Mel is extremely invested in progressivism because she needs to prove herself and show that Piltover's success is her success. She wants Piltover to be rich, that's her main motivation, and then she wants Piltover to be strong, that's a second motivation that she has. But she really abhors war and fighting, and so when the progressivism turns to creating weapons to be used to start a war, she actually switches factions and once again votes for conservatism and then fights against her mother who wants to use weapons for war. I thought this was a really amazing culmination of these problems in Arcane where one player's like most important motivation remains the same, but the conditions change such that they switch factions. If you can get situations in your game of Dungeons and Dragons where somebody cares very, very deeply about something, they might switch sides, and I think that can be really cool. You don't need to start a new campaign in the setting of Arcane to bring this to your game right now. You can pick the things that are central to your plot and drop them into this structure and then start asking yourself questions about the motivations of the characters that exist in your world as they relate to these structures. I think that a classical example that you can use for this is the already existing lawful versus chaos, good versus evil alignment chart that exists in Dungeons and Dragons. In classic D&D, law is depicted as civilization and chaos is depicted as the natural world. And then good and evil is kind of self-explanatory. So if in your world you have civilization, which is almost kind of like region in Arcane, where you have uh, maybe the humans who live in the cities that are expanding, they're participating in deforestation. And then you also have another region, which is chaos, the natural world, the forests, and that's where the elves and the orcs and the fae live. Their homes are part of the natural world. They either sing their homes into trees or live off the land. This is already mirroring this regional war between Topside and Undercity in your Dungeons and Dragons world. And then you also have good versus evil, right? So among the, the civilization, maybe there are good people who are trying to think of ways where they don't have to participate in deforestation anymore and f and further this conflict with the natural world. They're against human suffering and they're trying to, to help people who are suffering. And then maybe you also have evil humans who are imperial and want to wage war against maybe even other human kingdoms. Maybe they're actually allied with the evil elves. So you have this, this alliance between the evil natural world and the evil lawful world. And now all of a sudden, if you need to go on a character-by-character -character basis and slot them into what their primary motivations are in this matrix, you start to imitate the complexity of this arcane world without having to get hyper complex with the like underlying foundation right like city versus trees isn't all that complicated but i just went on a two minute rant talking about all the things that you could build off of that simple comparison 
Yeah, and I, I really love this idea of not changing your world so much necessarily to fit Arcane. You can use this existing Dungeons and Dragons parlance that you're talking about. Elves and humans and lawful evil versus chaotic good, all these alignment charts things. And then you can bring in the world of Arcane another step further by creating some technology as an inciting incident. So I'm thinking of something that puts two of these factions into alignment because of a really powerful magic item. You know, maybe you have something that mollifies the masses. Some magic item that takes away people's autonomy a little bit, but it creates less conflict. It makes people less likely to fight each other and less angry. And it's this massive area of effect. You could see good characters who are very lawful good being interested in this, and you could see lawful evil characters being very interested in this. And any kind of chaotic character, like a fey character or an elf, would find it completely abhorrent. And suddenly you have factions working together that you didn't expect, and your players can align themselves with one of the factions. And there's a very, very powerful magic item that probably should change hands a few times and go into your adventurer's hands and out of your adventurer's hands and into different parties to see what they do with it. You know, kind of like these Hextech crystals and the Shimmer. I think that would make for a really exciting, very D&D-like game with the benefits of Arcane woven in. I'm glad that you brought up the idea of the Shimmer and the Hextech crystals, because that is another really important piece of this inciting event that Arcane just hits out of the park. We don't really know what the Hextech crystals are capable of, and neither do the characters in the story. So when they get stolen and the scene of the crime is blown up, and people don't exactly know why, they just know that the Hextech crystals are unstable and they're dangerous. But other than that, we're not really sure what they're capable of. That mystery, that unknown, the potential for great danger causes the characters in the world to make decisions that they wouldn't have maybe made if they knew exactly what the Hextech crystals were. The unknown is scary to people. And that fear will drive you to make extreme decisions. And that's why including a magic item that is an unknown entity, something like a natural resource, like a Hextech crystal, that has underlying untapped potential is such a great thing to use as an inciting incident. Because along with that comes the unanswered question of, which faction is going to have enough time to be the one to unlock the potential of this resource? And can the other factions recover it before that faction has a chance to weaponize it and use it against the other ones? And as it becomes more and more clear that the faction is becoming closer and closer to weaponizing this resource, the other factions will become more and more desperate that's a great point, that this uncertainty adds drama, just in general. Arcane is very good storytelling, it goes through an amazing narrative, and obviously uncertainty and the, the fear of the unknown is a big part of that. So I think adding that into your game is something that's going to help all the time. You can use that with magic items like these technological pieces in a great way in your game, where in the Dungeon Master's Guide, it explicitly talks about Cases where identify doesn't quite work all the way, and cases where curses come up. And I think you can bring these into your game in really fun ways with time skips as well. Ray, you just talked a lot about 
having enough time to figure things out with this piece of technology. One of the ways that Arcane does this really well is by having a time skip where you find the Hextech and then eventually they learn how to transport ships with this Hextech. I think this is such a cool piece of Arcane as a storytelling device where you now get characters that grew up with this technology. You get characters like Jinx and Echo that have really incredible feats of growth through, you know, the world that has changed. If you can bring that into your game as well, you can capture this piece of technology, this amazing magic item for one of your factions. And then you can put in a time skip into your game to give that faction enough time to really change the world. And suddenly the actions that your characters did in game had a really meaningful impact. If your characters captured some magic item for their own faction, it allows that feat to have really amazing consequences. And you can see the amazing things that these magic items can do and you have still more uncertainty of what a different faction would do with those magic items. So after the time skip, you know, after this hex tech has been used by Jake, Jinx can steal it again and create a terrifying weapon with it. If you can create some analogy in your game where a new faction steals this technology after a long time, gets another time skip with it, and develops their own technology, it can be really cool. So I think this use of time skips in Arcane is something that we can bring into our games of Dungeons and Dragons as well. This is something that I've brought up, I think, or we've brought up in the past couple episodes. I've become completely enamored with this idea of adding really long time skips to my games. So many, many years. Uh, this idea where you get to see your characters be involved in important inciting events where they are not yet capable of dealing with the challenges and there being consequences for that. There are failures that occur as a result of them not being strong enough or capable enough. And then giving them enough time narratively to grow and rise to the occasion throughout their lifetime and then succeed, as opposed to what happens typically in Dungeons and Dragons, which is <laughs> climbing from level three to level eight in the span of maybe like a week or a month or two months, maybe maximum, where you just become so much more powerful and influential in, in not enough time for your character to experience growth as a person. Arcane doesn't have the liberty that a game of Dungeons and Dragons has, where when you're playing with your friends around the table, it doesn't really need to make sense. You can just grow a bunch of levels and run around and kill everything because you are the only people around the table. There's not millions of people following this story. But, but Arcane needs to, you know, have some sense of internal consistency in it. And so these time skips are how they do that. You get to see players grow and level up in amazing ways that we want in our games of Dungeons & Dragons. But really the only realistic way to do that is to have these time skips. So I think if you're looking to add some more realism and some more narrative to your game, adding in time skips is a good idea. You get to give your players leveling progression that creates a world where there's only a few high-level characters because it takes years and years to become so high-level. And you let your players be special in ways that they wouldn't feel like if everybody could gain 10 levels in two weeks. If there were you know, a million level 20 wizards in your world, it wouldn't feel special for your character to be level 15. That's exactly correct. We get to see Echo grow up into a high level fighter because he spent his entire life in between the time skip that occurs in Arcane fighting, right? We get to see Vi 
grow up into a very competent fighter because she spends the time skip getting beat up on over and over and over again and, and fighting for her life in prison. We get to see Jinx become a high-level character because she spends her time skip fighting for Silco and being a criminal and tinkering with different things. She's really bad at tinkering in the beginning of the show, but because she levels up and she gains that proficiency bonus and she takes the, the class specialization, she becomes a very competent tinkerer by the end of the time skip. And now we get to see why these characters that are the main characters, why these player characters are the people who get to make the change in the world. It's because they're the ones who were focused on getting stronger for years and years and years and have come up in this world filled with conflict and now are in a position to make change when they weren't at the beginning of the adventure. Yeah, I love all the arcs that each of these characters gets to go through. It really feels earned. It feels like these characters went through something to reach the point that they are at the end of season one. And creating cliffhangers in your time skips, putting the magic item in a different place, uh, leaving with a villain that runs away and, and isn't killed by your party but, but gets away and now you time skip. I think these things are, are really important for having character arcs and growth that we don't always get in Dungeons & Dragons. One of the things that we love when we watch movies, when we watch TV shows is seeing a character really change and grow. One of the great things about Critical Role, for instance, is that they have over a hundred sessions of D&D for a single campaign. I don't expect that most of our campaigns will get to do that, so having time skips involved allows you to play through the low-level, mid-level, and high-level all together to really have these special stories that have a beginning, middle, and end. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much more that we could dive into because this show is so special and so inspiring. Yeah, I almost wanted to talk about how Jinx could be played as a player character and how you could have a million weird mechanics for being tortured and haunted, but also in like an amazing tinkerer. But I think that would take a whole subclass redesign to, to do something like that. Jinx is just like three different multi-classes is what it turns out to be. She's like an artificer. Also sort of a warlock. Yeah, she's like a warlock also. Yeah, she's she's an artificer, warlock, fighter, multi-class. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's really incredible. And so, you know, I think there's so many things in Arcane that, that you could find that, that we didn't find and, and bring into your game too. Absolutely. If you haven't seen it still and you disregarded our warnings to not listen until you've seen Arcane, please go watch it. This was not a summary of the show. Yeah, we didn't do too bad a job of uh, not spoiling everything. So I think it was okay. Yeah, there's still plenty to be discovered in there. I hope you enjoyed, and I hope uh, we gave you something to chew on for the next two weeks. Until next time, my name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasko. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.